Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, like I said, Bryce is not here this morning. Pastor Bryce is not here. So we have a guest speaker. His name is Chad Brewer. He is the RUF minister at the University of California of Irvine. Good morning. It is nice to be with you. I, uh, I am a campus minister at the University of California, Irvine, and I've done this for the last 21 years. Just a little bit of background. Not, not at UC Irvine for 21 years. Uh, different places. I, uh, I grew up in Maryland, and I became a Christian in college. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And uh, in college, later in life, started asking those questions about God, and is there a God, and what's the meaning of life? And through that, I became a Christian. And then because of that transformative time in college, I wanted to serve Jesus on the college campus. So I've been uh, at four different campuses uh, working with an organization called RUF, which is connected to Resurrection OC. And uh, one of the things that I love to do is to start things. So um, I love, uh, this is the fourth campus that I've been at. And when I go, I usually go to a campus where there's no campus ministry, start the campus ministry. And even before California, we went to Minnesota, a big change from California. We were in Minnesota, and my first year before I went to start the campus ministry at the University of Minnesota was to help start a church in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, starting a church, church planning, is a beautiful and hard thing. And, and what I want to say to you as you're part of this church plan is the thing that gets me excited about starting ministries or planning churches is being part of something, giving, giving blood, sweat, and tears to something that when you're gone, God still uses. And so, so Lord willing, as you sort of invest into Resurrection OC in these first early years of the church, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, even after you've left this life, God might still use your work to reach people with the gospel and to grow people up. And so I think it's a beautiful thing. And so I commend you for um, what you're doing. And if you're here for the first time or you're new, so glad that you're here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. And so that's, uh, if you, you can uh, turn it open on your phone Bible or a regular Bible, or it's page 46 if you're going to use the Bibles that are underneath your chairs. Um, have any of you taken personality tests? <laughs> have, you, have you done that? You know, there's the Meyer-Briggs test. There's the Enneagram, which is picking up some steam lately. There's the DISC test, D-I-S-C. There's the strength finder. And, and taking personality tests can be fascinating. Uh, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs scale. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, in case you're wondering. I'm an I on the DISC test. And what that means practically is, in this room, I'm probably the most irresponsible person, uh, if, if, if these things are true of me. Uh, you can take a personality test and figure out which Star Trek character you are. You can take a personality test and figure out which Harry Potter character you are most like. Or even the TV show Friends, you can figure out which character you were most like. And we're drawn to these personality tests because we want to understand better who we are. And we're constantly asking that question, who am I? 
This morning we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of Exodus when God told Moses that Moses was the one that God was planning to use to deliver his people out of Egypt. And Moses' first thought to God's calling on his life is, God, who am I? I want to look at Exodus chapter 3 uh, to better understand the question of who am I? And if even that's the best question for us to ask of God. Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord given to you for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is for our good and that you have revealed yourself to us because you love us and you care for us. Lord, we need your word or we forget easily who we are apart from your word and we forget even more importantly who you are. Lord, would you give us this day a reminder of who you are? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a story of French prisoners of war after the Second World War when they were returning back to France. They had been so traumatized by the war that they were even unable to remember who they were. 
And so France, in effort to reconnect these soldiers who had been so traumatized by the war, uh, began to try to figure out ways how to connect these soldiers back to their families, back to their friends. And so they would take out advertisements in newspapers, advertising, trying to connect these soldiers who were lost, who didn't know who they were, with their family. One of the things that they did was they began to advertise uh, at a large opera house in Paris that they were going to have the soldiers who could not remember who they were come up and present themselves before people in a crowd. And so people were invited to the opera house and they came out in droves of people, people who were looking to reconnect, wondering if their family members were still alive. And there these men were coming on stage in front of hundreds and hundreds of people looking out into the audience and asking the question, does anyone here know who I am? For Moses, asking God, who am I, is not a wrong question to ask. But it wasn't necessarily the best question for Moses to ask God. You know, often when we face obstacles or struggles in our lives, the first question that we ask, like Moses, is God, who am I? God, who am I to face this issue? Who am I to overcome this struggle with sin that I hate? God, who am I to handle this hardship in my life right now? Who am I to be a leader in this church? in my community, at my job. God, who am I to raise my kids? God, who am I? When Moses asks the question, who am I? God ignores his question. The best question for Moses to ask is not who am I, but the question that Moses should have asked God is who are you? And God implies this, that the question that we need to be asking when we think about ourselves is first, God, who are you? It seems uh, today with psychology and counseling, personality tests, ancestry DNA tests, things that are very helpful and so interesting that we know ourselves better now than any previous generation and yet often doesn't feel like we're better off. Knowing who God is is important if we're going to understand ourselves. Focusing on knowing who God is will give us strength, give us confidence, give us courage, and give us joy to face the obstacles that are no doubt already in our lives and that will come into our lives. In the first three chapters of Exodus, they're answering the question, who is God? Uh, we're going to see three things this morning. Uh, that God is ever seeing. We'll see that in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to see that God is continuously orchestrating in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, we're going to see that God is always dangerous. We'll begin with God is ever seeing. Uh, just a few months ago, I was in Chick-fil-A with a student uh, right across from UC Irvine. And uh, we went up to go order our food. And while we were ordering food, he realized that he had left his phone at the table. So he, he went back to the table to get his phone, and it was gone. Uh, that same week, my wife was in that same area uh, shopping at Trader Joe's. 
and she took out her phone to uh, and laid it on the counter to pay the bill and she took their bags and she left. About 30 seconds she realized, oh, I left the phone on the counter. She walked back in and the phone was gone. And both the student and both my wife had the same question for the two managers of the stores. Do you have any video footage? Is there other cameras who were watching the tables or, or the counters? And, and there weren't. But it's that same idea. Has anyone seen what just took place? Is anybody watching? Is anyone paying attention to what's happened? And this is what Israel must be asking God as now Egypt begins to deliver great pain in their lives. In, in Exodus chapter 1, there is now a new pharaoh or a new king of Egypt. And this new king of Egypt is no longer aware. He doesn't remember Joseph. God had raised up Joseph to be a leader. who was, He was an Israelite to be a leader in Egypt, giving them great help. But now the new king doesn't remember Joseph. And he sees the Israelites growing in numbers, and now he's threatened by the Israelites who are now living in Egypt. And so he puts together a plan to protect Egypt, to deliver great suffering into the lives of the Egyptians. And the first part of the plan is to set taskmasters over the Israelites to make them work as slaves, which they were, they were working for the Egyptians, but now he was working them harder earlier and later their strength is zapped and they're suffering greatly as slaves by the hands of the Egyptians but the second part of the Pharaoh's plan was even more devious than the first part and what the Pharaoh wanted to do is he wanted to kill all of the Israelite babies who were male genocide he wanted to wipe out a generation of males so that they couldn't rise up and grow in strength and one day overtake the Egyptians. And so that's how Exodus chapter 1 ends. They're in slavery suffering and now Pharaoh wants to kill all of the male children. And in Exodus chapter 1 there are exactly zero mentions of God in Exodus chapter 1. And the silence of God here is screaming out, God do you see what is happening? If you ever ask that question, are you paying attention, God, to what's going on in my life now? A year and a half ago, I, the family, uh, my three daughters and my wife and I, we went to Yosemite and uh, the National Park, and we were told by people once we arrived at the park that one of the things that you have to do is you have to go on the bear hike with Ranger Johnson. And this hike really wasn't a hike, it was an hour-long walk, a slow walk, where Ranger Johnson is just telling you the story of bears in Yosemite National Park. At the end of the hike, Ranger Johnson tells us why he has done the bear hike for the last 30 days, for the last 30 years, every day that he's worked. He went on to tell us that when he was a brand new ranger, after receiving the best possible training in ranger school in the National Park System, he was a new ranger. He was out with a friend, and they were walking deep into the back part of Yosemite. And they were talking, and he wasn't really paying attention. And he came up on two bear cubs, 30 yards in front of him. And he knew from his training that this was 
a terrible place to be and that he hadn't been paying attention. So he begins to scan from his left to the right looking for the mother bear. He doesn't see the mother bear. And then he turns his body around and the mother bear is 30 yards on the other side. And Ranger Johnson is squarely between the mother bear and her cubs. And it was the last place that he ever wanted to be. Egypt finds itself in the last place it wants to be between God and between God's people. And God has ever seen. God sees what's taking place in Egypt with his people. God is ever seeing, and theologians will call this God's omniscience. I want to read to you um, what J.I. Packer, theologian, says about God's omniscience. He says, omniscient is a word that means knowing everything. Scripture declares that God's eyes run everywhere. God searches all hearts and observes everyone's ways. In other words, he knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. God's knowledge is linked with his sovereignty. He knows each thing both in itself and in relation to all other things because he created it, sustains it, and now makes it function every moment according to his plan for it. He continues, To the Christian believer, knowledge of God's omniscience brings the assurance that the Christian has not been forgotten, but is being and will be cared for according to God's promise. To anyone who is not a Christian, however, the truth of God's universal knowledge must bring dread. For it comes as a reminder that one cannot hide either oneself or one's sin from God's view. And because God is ever seen, He is continuously orchestrating events for their good. And the second point is God is continuously orchestrating. Exodus chapter 1, it ends in slavery with the possibility of genocide with no mention of God. And then Exodus chapter 2 begins strangely. This is how it begins. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman, in, the woman conceived and bore a son. And this seems like a non sequitur after what we just heard from Exodus chapter 1. What can a baby possibly have to do with the impending genocide of the people of God? But God, like a mother bear, is on the move. And he is continuously orchestrating events for his people. And God shows up, and no one notices it here until after the fact. In Illinois, this fall, there's a man who is being sued for the outcome of a high school football game. And the lawsuit alleges that this man swayed the outcome of this high school playoff football game. The issue at hand was there was a man, a father, who was standing on his son's football team. And this father was dressed as a referee, though he was not a referee. He put on the referee uniform to undermine and to influence the outcome of the game. And because of this uniform and standing on the side, no one noticed during the game what he was doing influencing the other referees until after the game was over. God is continuously, constantly 
orchestrating events in our lives, even when no one is noticing it, even when you're not noticing it. His invisible hand is always at work in our lives. And theologians call God's constant involvement, his continuously orchestrating events, they call this his his providence. I want to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, about providence. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And we see God's providence is continuously orchestrating all events in Exodus chapter 2 in Moses' life. We see it in the timing of his birth, the details of his birth, and in the crisis of his life. In the timing of Moses' birth, Moses is born to Levite parents. Now, Levites were important because Levites served as the mediators between God and his people. And so we see that God is now orchestrating, working in Moses' life for the future. Not only is Moses born as a Levite, but he's actually born to the daughter of Levi. Moses was born at the exact time when suffering is greatest for the people of God. He is born when the male children are being murdered. And of all the time for Moses to be born, now was the worst time, or perhaps in God's providence, It was the best time. We see this secondly with the details of his birth. Moses is placed in a basket by the reeds in a river by his mother because the Egyptian males are being killed. Moses is then found by, of all people, ready for this, the king of Egypt's daughter, the one who is trying to kill the Egyptian males, his daughter finds the baby in the reeds. And so this child then needs to be nursed, needs to be cared for. And so now the king of Egypt's daughter needs to find someone to nurse this baby. And so she finds an Israelite to do it who happens just to be Moses' mother. And now she is being paid to do what she would have done for free. So Moses becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He is the grandson of the king of Egypt. He is now the grandson of Levi. And God has his man right where he wants him to be, on the inside. And no one knows what God is doing, but God knows. Moses is raised with the best education in the world, with the best home in the world, with the best food in the world, with the best health in the world. Why the rest of Israel is suffering, eating poorly, physically weak from intense slavery. Moses is growing in strength. It looks like everything is perfect for Moses as God is raising him up. And then Moses seems to make a huge mistake. And this is the crisis in Moses' life. Moses decides to intervene between an Israelite and an Egyptian who are fighting with one another. And then Moses reveals his allegiance that he's an Israelite. And so to stop this, to keep the Egyptian from Killing the Israelite, Moses kills the Egyptian. He realizes what has happened. 
and the problem that this could present. And so he begins to look around. Someone has seen what Moses has done. His life now must be over. He's got to escape. And so Moses leaves to go to the land of Midian. We need to remember that when God seems most hidden, He is not. When God seems most absent, we can be confident that He is at work in our lives. That God does His best often when times are most difficult. This means for you and me that just because we can't fathom what good can come out of a difficult situation doesn't mean that God will not bring good out of a difficult situation. In fact, as we grow in our understanding of who God is, which is most important, the most important thing in our lives, knowing that He is continuously orchestrating all things for His good, for His glory, it gives us confidence in the darkest of circumstances. Again, from the Heidelberg Catechism, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God that no creature, creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. God is ever seeing. He is continuously orchestrating. And the third point is that God is always dangerous. I struggle at how to name this third point. If using the word dangerous was perhaps too strong or perhaps too weak. Uh, Tim Keller helped me immensely with this uh, third point in one of his sermons. Uh, we see that God gets Moses alone. So after Moses kills the Egyptian, he has to flee to the desert. And before, Moses had the attention of Egyptian royalty. Now he has the attention of sheep. He's a shepherd in the desert of Midian, and he has been humbled. He's no longer wearing royal robes and eating royal foods. He's no longer living in a royal palace. He spends most of his time alone during the heat of the day and the cold at night with sheep. And he's most teachable now at this stage in his life. And Moses is now ready to meet God for the first time in his life. Perhaps you've been humbled deeply recently in your life. And maybe that this is God's preparing you to meet Him in a way. Maybe you're a Christian and this humbling has taken place in your life. And God is going to grow you deeper in your faith and who He is. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're visiting resurrection. Oh, see? And God has humbled you and you're more open to who He is or that He may be real and true. And this may be the timing that God is using in your life to bring you to trust in Him, to call Him your God, to call Jesus your Savior. Savior. Moses is most teachable at this moment because often when we meet God, our life is on some kind of detour where we're not doing 
well, where we're struggling, perhaps it's a health issue, perhaps it's anxiety, perhaps it's disappointment in life, perhaps we've failed in some way, perhaps it's actually finding success, but it's not really satisfying to us. Maybe it's an intellectual crisis that you're wrestling through. Moses, no doubt, knew of God, but it doesn't seem like he knew God. He knew of God, but it doesn't seem like he knew God until this event in Exodus 3 when God gets Moses alone. And God introduces himself to Moses in this unbelievably strange sight here in Exodus chapter 3. He introduces Moses to himself as a bush that is burning with fire, but it's not consumed. Of course, Moses would have never seen anything like this before. And he's drawn to this bush that is on fire, but it's not burning up. It was a fire that needed no fuel to burn. What kind of fire burns without fuel that exists on its own? Moses was meeting the God who was self-existent. R.C. Sproul, in writing about God says this, what makes God different from people, from stars, from earthquakes, from any other creaturely thing is that God and God alone is self-existing. He alone exists by his own power. No one made him or cost him. He exists in and of himself. Of all the ways that God could have answered the question, God, who are you? God uses fire to answer this question. The self-existing God shows up as fire. And then he tells Moses to take off your shoes because now you're standing on holy ground when you're in my presence. In other words, God is saying, you're in the danger zone now. If you get any closer, you're going to be consumed. And God is fire means that God is dangerous. Fire is the presence of God. It's the sign of the presence of God. When God is leading Israel in the desert, he leads them as a fire at night. And on Mount Sinai, God shows up as fire. And the last verse in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Blaise Pascal, the famous French scientist and Christian, he died in 1662. And after his death, his servant discovered that Pascal had sewn into his jacket a piece of parchment. He had taken the time to actually sew a piece of parchment into his jacket that would sit right beside his heart at all times. And this is what he wrote and was found on this parchment on the inner, the inside of his jacket. In the year of the Lord, 1654, Monday, November 23rd, From about half past ten in the evening until half past twelve, fire. Pascal had an experience with God that would shape him for the rest of his life. And the way that he was able to articulate his experience, his meeting with God, was fire. And fire is not like water, it's not like clay that we can put our hands on and that we can shape and that we can move and mold, but fire cannot be shaped. Fire has the power to form, and it's dangerous. 
It has the power to purify. It has the power to consume. And so the question is, how can Moses be in the presence of God who is a fire and not be consumed? Verse 2 of chapter 3. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And we see that the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. In the Bible, the angels, they're messengers. They deliver a message from the Lord to, to people. And these angels, they never are to receive worship. They never receive worship. Worship is only for God alone. But here in Exodus chapter 3, the angel of the Lord speaks as if he's God. And here this angel of the Lord is receiving worship. And this is not your typical angel that you see in the Old Testament or even in the New. This is something that is different. This is something that is greater. And the angel of the Lord is the way that humanity can come near to God. Alex Matier, uh, who is a theologian commenting on Exodus 3, this is what he says. The angel of the Lord is the way God continues to solve a problem. The problem being, how can a holy God, a consuming fire, be near his people? He continues to say, there is only one other person in the Bible who was identical but distinct from the Lord. While affirming the wrath of God, he also affirms his mercy. And this is Jesus Christ. Here as the angel of the Lord, before he is human. This makes sense. Because how could Moses get this close to God and not be consumed? How can humanity physically bump up against God in the flesh and not be consumed? Because Jesus brings the mercy of God to you and to me. All the while affirming that our God is holy and that he's a consuming fire. And the reason that we can be certain that our God is ever seen continuously orchestrating and always dangerous is because of Jesus. God ever seeing, he saw to our need and planned at the right time to send his son Jesus. And God continuously orchestrating all events throughout history to lead up to that burning bush, to the angel of the Lord's incarnation, his appearance in the world. In Galatians, we see this. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might see adoption, adoption as sons. And we see Jesus, like Ranger Johnson, he finds himself in between the holy and the righteous and the just God and God's people. And he finds himself right in between the two. But he wasn't there by accident like Ranger Johnson. He was there by purpose. Because it was where he wanted to place himself. He was there by his love. He was there by the Father's love. And he placed himself between the Father and his people so that he could be consumed. So that we would not need to be consumed. Knowing who we are is good. But knowing who God is, is great. And knowing who God is will be the thing that will give you encouragement. Because maybe it's not today, 
But someday is going to come along where you're going to begin to ask the question, how can I handle this? Who am I? But that's not the best question to ask. The question to ask, maybe that day is today that you're feeling this, but the question will be to ask is, God, who are you? And then we remember that it's Jesus who sees to our need, comes to our need, rescues us, and is constantly working, even when we can't see. And we don't even know until after the event usually passes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that you are for us and that you're constantly orchestrating events Lord, in our lives because you're ever seeing. Lord, we want to believe these things are true. Lord, we, we believe and we ask that you would help us to believe. Lord, we want to believe that you do see that there's not, there's not one thing that takes place in our lives that you are not involved in. We want to feel your hand. We want to see your hand. Lord, we're thankful that you, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus. Lord, so that we can be certain that you have seen to our greatest need and that you are continuously working in our lives. Lord, let Jesus be our greatest reminder of what he's done um, and what you are doing in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.